0: Good morning. We're going to read together from Matthew chapter 1, one of the classic Christmas narrative accounts, and so I'm going to ask you to do that with me as I drop all my stuff here. Before we do that, let me ask a question. Um, Last week I introduced a concept, uh, who's your one? When you think of Christmas time and all the friendships, all the relationships you have, who's the one person God has put on your heart most that you pray for, that you think about, talking to Jesus about? Who's the one person who comes to mind? You got a name in your mind? Let's pray for those people right now. God, we pray for the folks that are closest to us, our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, our friends. And we pray that you will work through us and through your spirit to open up their hearts and their minds to understand Jesus at this time of year when many people have questions, when many people bring up his name or even think about attending church. Give us the right opening to talk about the faith that we have and the reasons for it or why we love Jesus and give us an opportunity to invite somebody to take a step closer to him. And our prayer is that by the time we get to Christmas, that there are some of these friends, maybe even many of them, who come to have a life-giving relationship with him that will be new and fresh on this Christmas day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. Let's read this together. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was uh, found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because her husband was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus." Perry Green is a pastor in Oklahoma, and he tells a story of a chauffeur who had driven a chemistry professor to dozens and dozens of speaking engagements. In each of these speaking engagements, he had heard the same canned speech scores of times. On the way to one of these particular events, he said to the professor, Professor, I I think I could give your speech myself. I've heard it so many times. In fact, I think I could do it word for word. So the professor challenged him and he said, I'll bet you $50 you can't do it. The chauffeur said, you're on. So quickly he stopped the car and they both got out and they kind of opened the doors and, and right there they changed clothes. And the professor Put on the tuxedo, Uh, I mean uh, the professor took off his tuxedo and gave it to the chauffeur and the chauffeur took off his clothes and gave them to the professor and he had on his uniform and his chauffeur's cap and they arrived at the event and there was a dinner. And so the chauffeur sat in the professor's honored seat and then when the time came for the address later on, he came up and brilliantly gave the exact same talk word for word that he'd heard the professor give. It was so good that when he got to the end, there was this rousing applause. And then the MC got up and he said, this was such an amazing talk with so many people who are experts in their field and I see we have a little extra time. Why don't we have a question and answer session? And the first question came out, and the chauffeur standing there pretending to be the, the, the professor had no idea what the question even meant. And he started to get hot on the collar, and he was humming and hawing, and then he got an idea. And he looked at the person who asked the question, and he said, that is the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. In fact, that question is so dumb that I'll bet that even my chauffeur can answer it. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, the eloquent Christian writer, once said, we don't need to be told new ideas as much as we need to be reminded of old truths. And so it is with Advent and Christmas. We come to a season where virtually everybody in the audience at least knows the basic truths that we're going to talk about. But we need to be reminded of the depth of what's here lest we skim over the surface and we fail to understand exactly what God is trying to convey to us. This morning our theme is presence. If you can see behind me here we have each of the the words of this series that are laid out. Each is a one word topic. Last week we talked about the gift of patience as we begin Advent and this week we're going to talk about the presence of God in Jesus and each week we'll highlight one of these themes. The promise of God's presence is wrapped up in one of the titles that the Christmas angel applies to Jesus when he appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he says they will call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew interprets for us, and in parentheses in your Bible, it usually says, God with us. What does it mean when we talk about the presence of Jesus in the manger that morning? What does it mean when we talk about the presence of Jesus in our lives as we look at the way that we live and the way that we hope. Here's the central idea that's flowing through this morning's message. The presence of Jesus allows us to live every day connected to the redemptive power of God. I'd like to show you where that comes from. There are a number of questions that we have uh, if we're thinking through these very well-known Christmas narratives Uh, One of those questions is, all right, is it a manual with an E or a manual with an I? How many of you noticed the difference? We read a manual with an I in the text, but the songs up here use a manual with an E. What's the difference somebody asked me this morning? Well, it has to do with an interpretive decision. As people get closer and closer to understanding the Old Testament Hebrew... But the Old English spelling that came out in the King James Bible and therefore in a number of the older hymns used the E spelling while it's probably a little more correct in interpreting these vowel sounds from Hebrew into English that the I spelling is actually a little more uh, precise. Does it matter? No. Same name, right? What matters is what the name means. And that gets to the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. What does the sign of Emmanuel that we have read about here in the Old Testament, as David Cote read a little bit earlier from Isaiah chapter 7, and as we just read from Matthew chapter 1, what does the sign of Emmanuel mean? Verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 1 read this way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'd like to tell you what I was discovering this week as I was researching this question. What does Emmanuel mean? First, it's a sign of God's deliverance in the midst of troubling time. So the word you're missing there is deliverance. If I go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and kind of shorten that paragraph, it's long, but just to, to fit into a little bit more of a pithy way, I, I uh, condensed this. Verse 10 starts off saying, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is the king who was reigning in Judah at that time. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Skip ahead to verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Verse 16. Now, the name Emmanuel only appears four times in the Bible. Three times in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, all part of the same discussion, and one time in Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah had the task of delivering the word of the Lord in a time when kings did not listen. So in Isaiah chapter 6, just prior to this pivotal verse, Isaiah asks a question to the Lord, and he says, For how long, O Lord? For for how long will I have this ministry? where I'm proclaiming your truth to kings and they don't listen and I'm proclaiming your truth and calling people to follow after you and your ways and the people reject your truth. How long should I expect that this is going to be the condition of the world? These were troubling times for a number of reasons. It was troubling for Isaiah because King Ahaz didn't consult with him and he didn't take Isaiah's advice. It was troubling for the kingdom of Judah because Ahaz was leading them farther and farther away from the Lord. It was troubling for King Ahaz because he was leading in the days of of Israel's divided kingdom. And so there were two countries, and he was king over Judah to the south, while there was another more powerful kingdom, Israel, to the north. And Israel had allied itself even with another land Uh, with the kingdom of Aram and they were allied against Judah and they were making threats. They were threatening to sweep in and destroy the kingdom of Judah. So we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 7 during the time of the reign of King Ahaz of Judah which was a period from about 631 to 615 B.C all in all he reigned 16 years he was 20 when he took the throne most likely he spent about four or five years as a co-regent with his father before that time but he died at the age of 36 he didn't live very long and Ahaz the scriptures say was an evil king who led Judah into unprecedented acts of idolatry the truth is he was afraid he was afraid because there was a huge superpower just to the east of where they lived the Assyrian nation And he tried to appease the Assyrians. And so he introduced the Assyrian gods into the temple of Jerusalem. And he paid heavy tribute from the treasury in the temple to the king of Assyria. As chapter 7 in Isaiah opens, Israel and the kingdom of Aram were poised to attack Judah from the north. So as you're looking at that map, the brown part is the kingdom of Judah where Ahaz reigned. The green part is the northern section that had taken the name Israel with its capital as Samaria. And just above that is the kingdom of Aram. They were poised to attack Judah. Even though the king of Judah was not faithful, the Lord wanted him to know that he was not done with Judah and he still had a purpose for Judah. In fact, Judah would never cease to be in the heart of the Lord because it was from Judah that the Messiah would come. So an unusual conversation took place between King Ahaz and Isaiah. Probably more specifically between King Ahaz and the Lord himself through the prophet Isaiah. The Lord speaks to Isaiah and he says uh, to the king, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Imagine that. Sometimes you and I look for signs. We want God, give me a sign that something is true. Give me a sign about what I should do. Here's one of those instances where the Lord tells the king to ask for a sign and the king says no I won't do it I don't want to put the Lord to the test and so Isaiah responds and says okay therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign of his own choosing the sign would be the birth of a boy and they would give him the name or the title of Emmanuel the text of Isaiah doesn't make clear whether this was going to be Isaiah's son or whether this would be the king's son. We don't know, but we wonder because we find out in chapter 8 that all of Isaiah's kids had some really strange names that were all signs to the people. For instance, he has a daughter named Lo-Ami, which in Hebrew means not my people. Uh, He has another son that means swift to the plunder." which was talking about how the nations that were just above Judah were going to be plundered and it would happen very, very suddenly and these great and powerful nations that were causing King Ahaz to be filled with fear were going to disappear and the hand of God would accomplish all of this. Now we do it through the Assyrians. And so the prophecy says that before the boy was old enough to know right from wrong. How old would you guess that is? Before a boy knows right and wrong. Seven or eight, ten. Some of you are saying, why well, still don't? And I'm 40? All right, bad question. Probably not that old, though, to know the basics about right and wrong. I love you guys. You always know how to show me <laughs> up. The point was that God's purpose for Judah would be fulfilled. And he wasn't going to allow them, even though they were the smaller nation with the smaller army to be dominated by these other countries at that time. Israel could make their promises. Aaron could make their promises. But he's telling them, remember, I'm giving you this promise. Emmanuel, God is with us. Emmanuel, that's all you need to remember. God is with you. This was a message that the Lord had for all of those who were faithful during the time of Isaiah's Years of prophecy and during the reign of King Ahaz. This is a reminder to us that the Lord is able to deliver his people even in the most troubling, darkest times of our lives. There is nowhere that you can go in this world and escape the Lord's presence. He is able to bring hope into the most troubling of moments, and his purposes will prevail. Whatever he declares he will do, he does. It's as if he is saying to Isaiah and to King Ahaz, let the nations make their plans. Let Israel boast all they want. Let, let uh, the king of Aram threaten all he wants. But just remember this, Emmanuel, God is with us. See, the presence of Jesus allows us to live every day connected to the redemptive power of God. And this is the first glimpse that he gives us of his enduring presence. Now let's look at the second time that we find the name Emmanuel used. It's used three times in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. But the next time it shows up is in the Gospels in chapter 1 of Matthew. And here we find that it was a sign that God was with Joseph and Mary. Now you and I always think of Jesus and Joseph and, and Mary being connected, right? It's on the Christmas card. You get all three. We have code language. Sometimes we call them the Holy Family. But when the story starts, Joseph isn't so sure of what is going on. Verse 18. Matthew introduces us to the story this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because her husband was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here's the second time where we see the the name of Emmanuel introduced. It will never come up again in the rest of Scripture. The background is that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. This was a year-long formal engagement before being fully married, uh, before the ceremony would come and before they would move in together and all of that. This process was so formal that breaking the betrothal had legal and cultural ramifications in that part of the world. If one were to walk away without just cause, the other party could come back and there would be hefty penalties and there would be great disgrace over having broken the covenant. And a problem arises. The trouble was that Mary was pregnant and she had told Joseph, and Joseph struggled with her explanation that the child was God's work through the Holy Spirit. To understand some of the tension of this dilemma, we have to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. Imagine you've never heard about anything like this before, and the person that you're engaged to comes and says, Huh, little curveball here. I'm going to have a baby. It's not yours. But it's okay. It's completely from God. In fact, an angel told me this is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph struggled. He'd never heard of anything like this. Again, we're putting ourselves in Joseph's shoes for a moment. What if what Mary had told him was not true? this would mean that Mary who he trusted who he loved had violated their betrothal vows and that was difficult to hear maybe Mary was somebody very different than he thought she was and that also would mean that she was making up this crazy cover story if this was not true right and if this was not true it also mean would mean that the child was not his and the child really belonged to somebody else And what he hoped would be a marriage is now going to be some kind of triangle. There's a a different relationship that he hadn't counted on. It's one thing if you know up front, but he didn't know. Now, still in Joseph's shoes, what if it was true? Well, it would mean that God was doing something very, very unusual here. And there was something awesome about this moment. Yet, Friends and neighbors would still probably assume that this was a made-up story. They wouldn't understand. They probably wouldn't be all that supportive because the angel didn't appear to them. And if it was true, then the child Jesus was God's child. And this child would need protection from, from all of those who would oppose what God was doing. And in every generation, there's somebody who opposes what God is up to. And it would mean that the road ahead for Mary would be difficult. And he would need, she would need him. Joseph had three options in front of him. The first option was that he could publicly divorce her. But this would expose Mary to public shame, to ridicule, perhaps even to judgment. His second option, he could privately divorce her this meant that he would just sort of slip away he would tell Mary I'm not going to go through with it but I'm not going to shame you I'm not going to say anything he would uproot he'd leave town he'd move somewhere else and he would just disappear by the way I've had all kinds of questions this morning saying what happened to Joseph we don't hear about Joseph after the time that Jesus is 12 and they make that trek down to Jerusalem Joseph seems pretty good at disappearing so maybe he could have disappeared from here or there was a third option. He could believe her and marry her and raise this boy as his own and in everybody else's eyes claim this child as his own son. Matthew, as the narrator, tells us that while Joseph was considering these options, an angel appeared to him in a dream. Now that might seem strange to you, but yet if an angel had appeared to Mary directly to tell her what was coming wouldn't it be likely that he would also prepare the other party in this marriage seems fitting to me and in the dream the angel confirmed that the child was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit same message that had been given to Mary and he told Joseph not to be afraid and to take Mary home as his wife And he also commanded Joseph to give the child a very specific name, that his name would be Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. Matthew then invokes the name of Emmanuel, applying Isaiah 7.14 to Jesus' birth. There, Matthew announces that all of this was in fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy. his treatment makes this a dual fulfillment of that prophecy. That there had been a meaning back in the day of King Ahaz that there would be a child who would be born and that would be a sign that God was with the nation at that moment. But there was a new meaning that had been hidden until then that from the same prophecy God was also pronouncing something new that was tremendously confirming to Joseph. That this child would be given a title that meant that God was with us and that as Joseph took on this challenging role and as Mary took on her challenging role God was with them both. What an affirming sign, what an affirming name Emmanuel is. Matthew reveals that a promise about Jesus given some 600 years earlier was hidden in the prophecy of Isaiah's day. And Joseph takes this all to heart, completes the marriage contract and takes Mary home as his wife. And in obedience he does exactly what the Holy Spirit through the angel told him to do. He names the boy Jesus. Not Joseph Junior, Not his father's name, but the name Jesus, which is literally a combination of two Hebrew words that means God's savior or God saves. The presence of Jesus allows us to live every day connected to the redemptive power of God. We've seen this as a sign of deliverance. We've seen this as a sign that God was with Joseph and Mary. And here's the third discovery. This is also a sign that God is with us, too. The name Emmanuel wasn't just for 2,600 years ago, and it wasn't just for 2,000 years ago. It's meant to encourage you and me today. So again, we go back and look at these two verses, Matthew 1, and 23. Matthew is playing narrator here. He's putting the pieces of the puzzle together for us. And he says, "...all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet." The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now God had visited his people at times in the past. Sometimes he visited them in judgment. Sometimes he visited them with great blessing. He'd appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He appeared to Moses at the burning bush and again on Mount Sinai. He appeared to others at different times and now the birth of Jesus took the Lord's presence to a whole new and different level through the birth of Jesus God who as we saw in the video we can think of as distant and way out there looking down on earth from afar had taken on human life the author of creation had now become part of creation the immortal had embraced immortality The timeless one had entered time. And we begin to think through all these profound thoughts that are connected to the coming of Jesus as a child. Theologians have a big fancy word for this. They call it the incarnation. It simply means the inhabiting of man by God. It was brand new. We're not given answers to the how question. How did this happen? Except we're told by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of mystery around the Holy Spirit. We're not told exactly from a a biological standpoint all of this began. But we are given an answer to a different question. The so what question. And it arrives in that one name, that title, Emmanuel. Because Jesus has come, God is with us. When you have been with God in a profound way or through a profound experience, there are changes that take place which are noticeable. Think back into the Old Testament days when Moses met with God on the top of the mountain. As he came down, his face glowed from the presence of God. So much so that the people said, Moses, this is terrifying, put on a veil. And so every time that Moses would go meet with God, he'd have to put on this veil. Otherwise, he'd terrify the people with the presence of God that would radiate from him. That's amazing. Later on in the New Testament, Peter and James begin to preach in the streets of Jerusalem right after the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the religious leaders noted that they teach with an authority that's unlike other people, And these are ordinary fishermen. The one difference was they said they saw their courage and they knew that they had been with Jesus. That's the difference. Sometimes your experience of walking with Jesus creates a difference in your life that other people begin to notice. And they'll say, I don't know what it is, but something's changed. I can see it in this person's face. I can hear it in her confidence. I can see it in the courage that he has or the grace that he has. But something has changed. I knew the old person. This is a new and different person. I don't know what it is, but I'd like to find out. Ever had that happen to somebody that you knew? or Somebody say that about you? Probably has happened some. The presence of Jesus is what does that. And the presence of Jesus, the more we tap into it, allows us to live every day connected to the redemptive power of God. I think there are three implications that are worth tracing uh, of this concept that we've we've been trying to dig into so far. Here's the first one. Jesus' presence as God and man impacts us. He's God and man at the same time, but his presence as God and man at the same time has an ongoing impact on us. What happened in the manger that day is that God's way of redemption appeared. There were clues that were strewn throughout the Old Testament, but every once in a while that word redemption would come back, or the title of the Redeemer Redemption is a term that speaks to us of rescue, of release from a penalty, or release from the control of sin in our lives, sometimes ransom and release in the case of a hostage or a prisoner of war. So in becoming one of us, Jesus positioned himself uniquely as the mediator that we need between us and a holy God. Because he shares the very nature of God, he can represent God to us fully and accurately and completely like nobody else. But because he's also from our tribe, he shares our human nature and he's one of us, meaning that he can fully represent us to God. Both of those things happened through the cross of Christ. This is why his death on the cross and his victory over the grave matters so much to us. And if you're new to all this, it's why Christians talk about these things so much because that is where the redemption of God was accomplished. Redemption appeared in the manger that day, but it was only accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection. But the question remains, how is redemption applied? And this is what makes it personal, because the second implication is that Jesus' presence makes this a very personal thing. It's personal. Listen to the personal terms that John uses in the opening part of of his gospel, John chapter 1. He, Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So redemption appeared at his birth. Redemption was accomplished through his death and resurrection. How is redemption applied to our accounts? Through a response. And the response that is called for is faith. It is applied through the agency of our faith—not just any old faith, but we often talk about this being saving faith. There are all kinds of faith. There's, for instance, there's intellectual faith that says, uh, "I know certain dats, da, data about history, like George Washington was the first president of the United States. I can know that factually, but it doesn't change my life. Does it change yours? How's that working for you? Not much, right?" Or there's some things we can say, oh, yeah, that's true. Like some people say, yeah, I know, I know that Jesus came and Jesus died and you people worship him and you think about the manger and all you Christians get excited about this stuff. There's an assent that somebody uh, speaks of in that sense of, I generally know this is true and accepted, but I'm not buying it. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is when somebody receives Jesus as he is presented in the Scriptures And believes that he is the solution that God provided. And when we do that, there's actually a transfer or a shift of trust. It goes like this. We stop trusting in ourselves to be religious enough or good enough or somehow to clean up our own act and bring ourselves up to God. And instead we shift all of our weight onto the promises of Jesus, that he is the one who does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is the one who brings us to God and who fills in the gaps in our lives. I was in a Facebook conversation with a friend from another state last night, and, and uh, I wrote to him at one point. And I said, you know, I, I know that you and I come from different tribes, but I appreciate your love for Jesus. And he said, oh, I really do love Jesus, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life uh, trying to earn my, my grace. I thought, no, you, you don't get it. And I wrote back, and I said, I don't want to be argumentative, but the whole point about grace is you can't earn it. It, it, it really is a gift. There are many people in our day who think that's the way we have to approach God that we have to do enough religious things we have to show up in church enough we have to give enough to the poor and we do all of these things so that God will be impressed and God will say finally you're over the curve you're over the hump you're in you did it good for you and that's the opposite of grace grace is a gift that we never deserve it's a gift that God wants to give knowing that we could never get there by ourselves. And when we make that decision, we shift the balance from having all the weight on our shoulders to having all the weight on Jesus. And when you transfer your trust to Jesus, his redemptive work that was finished on the cross 2,000 years ago that was announced on the day that he showed up in the manger is directly applied to your spiritual account. And you become a new person on the inside. A whole new spiritual start. And God sees you as a completely new person too. Now, for some of you, that's, that's new or you've heard it, but you still haven't taken that step and acted on it. In a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to do that if you'd like to because everybody starts there in terms of how we are made new by the power of Christ. So let me come back to that in a minute. But here's the third implication. And it's more intended for those who have known the Lord for a long time. Jesus' presence needs to be practiced. And we forget this a lot. I'm going to jump ahead to a discussion that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. John chapter 15 records this discussion that takes three chapters of the Bible. But one verse summarizes it, John 15:5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Because Jesus is risen and alive, his presence is continually available. He lives within every person who trusts him through his Holy Spirit. Now, it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us, and Jesus invades your life through the Holy Spirit. Let's get that clear. The Holy Spirit is directly involved in all of this. Yet we still need to practice the art of remaining in him. In fact, Jesus makes it a command. He says if we don't get this right, we become like dry branches on the vine that every once in a while the gardener has to cut off because it's, it's not fruitful. It's not good stuff. And all that stuff gets thrown in the fire and gets burned up. How do we remain with Jesus? How do we remain Fruit on on the vine so to speak or branches on the vine that are healthy. There are a number of ways. One is by reading and reflecting on his word. We don't read the Bible just to say I did it, I'm done. You know I read through the whole thing in one crazy week in my life and I buzz through the whole thing I don't need to read it again. No, we need to read it on a continual basis and then reflect on it. Because it takes a lifetime for us to learn how to balance out these truths and how to live them out in split-second moments when decision-making is called for. If it's not in your mind, you're not going to act on it. Sometimes the art of remaining with Jesus is through prayer and meditation on his truth. Prayer is talking to God, very simply, but meditation is as we allow his word to flow into our thinking and become a part of what we carry around with us during the day and as we, we puzzle more deeply the impact of his truth. Sometimes part of that process involves dedicated fellowship with other men and other women who are also living by faith in Jesus. And we find that we learn with each other and sometimes as we're giving away some of the things that we learn, we get more encouraged as we see somebody else picking up those same truths and beginning to run with them. But we tend to go dry when we're on our own when we're not connected with other people. It's not a, a guilt-tripping command. It's, it's a life-giving command. And part of it is by exploring the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who opens our eyes to truth, who indwells us so that the Spirit of God is there continually. But the image is of the vine and the branches in a vineyard that are helping us make this connection with Jesus. Jesus. Branches that are cut off and isolated never grow and cannot produce fruit. But those branches that are continually connected to the source flourish. Fruit will be natural. Growth will be natural. And he tells us, remain in me and I will remain in you. So the concept that we've been tracking is this, that the presence of Jesus allows us to live every day connected to the redemptive power of God. So I want to raise a question. Would you like to be connected to the redemptive power of God? For some of you who this might be new for, I'd like to start with a prayer with you. And we're going to talk to God, and we're going to talk to God about some of the things that I just uh, spoke to you about. And I'm going to break it down in a phrase at a time so that you can follow me, and you can invite him into your life, and you can make that transfer of trust right now. And then we're going to have another prayer for those of us who've been walking with him for a long time and yet aren't sensing the power in our life, in our, in our ongoing relationship. Father God, here are the folks who are praying along with me right now and saying, all this is a new discovery to me, Lord. But I know that I've been trying to do things my own way, and I felt the pressure was all on me. I want to shift my trust from myself to be religious enough. And I want to place my trust on Jesus, who the Scriptures say has done everything that I need. He has accomplished redemption for me. So doubts and all, with my fledgling faith I'm telling you that I'm receiving Jesus as I know him right now and I believe that the child who was placed in that manger was the chosen one that you sent to rescue me Help my faith to grow Forgive me for my sins. Make me new on the inside. Help me to start over. And to learn so that I can dwell with you every day. In Jesus' name. Now if you prayed a prayer like that and that's new for you, you're at the start of something brand new that many of us around here have already come to understand. And we'd like to encourage you in that faith. But let me pray a second prayer for those of us who've been around for a long time in this walk of life. God, now I pray for the veteran Christians in the group. We confess to you that there are times when we go dry. And most of the time, it's because we stop doing things, building habits, that tie us into the vine. Renew us. Restore us. Let your life-giving spirit flow into us. That we would know your redemptive power and tap into your redemptive power every single day. Holy Spirit. Teach us. Connect us. Bring us to the Father. Communicate the heart of Jesus to us on a daily basis. That we would be yours, that we would know your strength, know your grace, know your power, and that others would know you're alive in us. Let that be true every day as we take steps to remain in you every single day. may we bear fruit to the glory of God it's in his name we ask